0: thank you david and hey thank you all for tuning in for worshiping with us together we're continuing in our series called acts the church in motion when church itself looks very different we're going right back to when this whole movement that we're a part of together when it began when jesus ascended to heaven the holy spirit came and empowered the people of god by God's Spirit, to go out as witnesses across the earth. So yeah, church looks really different. And it will continue to look different for a while. But by looking at Acts, we're remembering who we are at our core and who we are ultimately becoming. So I hope this has been a tremendous encouragement to you thus far. And this week we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 6. Next week, just as a heads up, we'll be in Acts 8. So check out 7 and 8, read it maybe through a few times this upcoming week in preparation for next weekend. Uh, but before I dive into Acts 6 for today, to give you a little background, as quick as I can, this early group of Jesus followers, the Holy Spirit came, day of Pentecost, 3,000 people came to Christ, the church was growing like crazy, Acts chapter 3, the Peter and John heal this 40-year-old crippled man and then they tell everybody about Jesus, 2000 more come to Christ, and then the chief priests come against Peter and John, and say, "Whoa, whoa, whoa you got to stop talking about Jesus." They said, "No, no, we're going to talk about Jesus. All we want because we follow him, and the church grows in boldness. And before you know it, they are man, it is strong. That they are treating each other like family, taking his personal responsibility to care for the needs of one another. In the midst of all of this growth, it seems like, man, God is doing something real. It really is God who is moving in and through this church community. But by the time we get to Acts chapter 6, we see that in the midst of all of this growth, that the growth is going to start exposing some underlying tensions in that community. I'll get to that in a second. But before I do, around the time I, turned to te- I became a teenager... My family moved from Georgia to Tennessee, and we started attending this church right in the middle of town. We had a few friends there, so we were immediately drawn there. But we also caught wind right as we started going. that Several years before, that the same church experienced a pretty nasty split. Some people left. There were some hurt feelings. We didn't ask a whole lot of questions, though, because we figured, eh, well, they have a new pastor now. New people are coming, the youth group was good, and I was growing. That that was the first church where I played music in front of anybody, where I spoke to other students. And so it seemed like a good fit for us. And we dug in, got involved, good things were happening. And all seemed good and dandy until, and you can probably see where this is going, there was this powerful little faction of people who decided that they were going to oust the new pastor. I didn't understand a lot at the time. All I remember is that one Sunday this pastor that I liked was there and the next Sunday he was just gone. And I talked to my parents years later trying to understand what actually happened. They said, well, there was this powerful group of traditionalists And as things were changing, because growth means change, they decided that instead of working with the church, they were going to draw lines, pick sides, and they started viewing the pastor and other people in the church as their adversaries instead of their brothers or sisters in Christ. And thinking back over that over the years, I thought, man, Isn't that exactly what God's true adversary would want to do? As right as things are starting to grow, start to turn the people of God against one another. And as a result of that toxic situation, that church became so toxic, in fact, that my parents just decided that they couldn't even stick it out anymore, which is saying a lot because my parents, they grew up with the principle that once you commit to something, you stick it out. Both of them had the same childhood church for as long as they lived where they lived. And they've been at the same church for 18 years now. But that shows how toxic it actually became when they said, we just can't be here anymore. And when we see the way that God's enemy loves to sow division and tension in the midst of churches... We see that it's not anything new. This trick is as old as the very beginning of the church. And we see that in Acts chapter 6, starting at verse 1. Thankfully, the situation in Acts 6 turns out differently than the church I experienced. But hey, let's check it out. Acts chapter 6, starting at verse 1. Read it with me. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing... This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas from Antioch, a convert of Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient too. The faith. We're going to jump into that. Will we pray these words after me and say, God, open my heart, open my mind. I give my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, I don't know about you, but it's easy for me to look at the picture of the early church and read about the early church and think, man... Wouldn't it be great if we could all just get back to those days? It seems so idealistic. The Spirit of God is moving. People are giving their lives to Jesus. The love is tangible. But Acts 6 shows us that even the greatest churches still have problems. Even the greatest of churches still have problems. The early church was pretty amazing, but it was not a perfect picture of utopia. A church may look perfect on paper, but once you start adding us human beings to it, well, it's not so perfect anymore. And that's not a cynical statement at all. But that's understanding that if we're going to be a part of the church of Jesus, that doesn't mean that we come to church perfect. But in order to be a part of the church in the first place it comes realizing that we are not perfect. When we come to church thinking that we have to be perfect, or we come to a church expecting it to be perfect for us, we've misunderstood what the church actually is. In that you and I become a part of the church of Jesus because we've confessed that we're not perfect. That we need God's forgiveness. And that we've chosen to follow Jesus. And then... As followers of Jesus, together we learn how to grow together, to yield to God's Spirit as He works within us to shape us to have the character of Jesus. And when we're growing together, guess what? Problems are going to come up because we're learning. It's a part of growing. But we see Acts chapter 1, Acts, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 6 verse 1. The number of people were giving their lives to Jesus. Uh, The early church in Jerusalem was growing, very exciting. But the bigger it got, the more certain groups of people started to become neglected. Basically, it wasn't intentional, but their administrative processes and systems could not keep up with the growth. And uh uh-oh. The leaders who were distributing help who were native-born Hebraic leaders, started neglecting, unintentionally, the Hellenistic Jewish widows among them. And that might appear initially like an oopsie, but it would have felt much deeper than that for them. Because underneath the complaints of the Hellenistic Jewish men and women, was an existing tension between the Hellenistic and Hebraic Jews already in society. See, to try to help us understand a bit, the the Hebraic Jews were those native-born in Israel. So most of the apostles coming from Galilee would have been Hebraic Jews. They spoke Aramaic. They would have been highly nationalistic, traditional. It, they were tempted to think that because they were born there, that they were the more pure, quote-unquote, Jews. And then you had the Hellenistic or Greek-born Jews who spoke predominantly Greek and who acted much like Greeks. They would often come to Jerusalem for the big major festivals like Pentecost. However, for The Hebraic Jews, they often looked down upon the Greek Jews as somewhat second class. A little less than, especially the Pharisees. The Pharisees were convinced that these Hellenistic Jews weren't pure Jews. But now in the church, these two different groups of Jewish men and women are now one in Christ. But, when the Hellenistic widows were overlooked... Now, all of a sudden, they're starting to wonder, is this church going to be just like the outside culture? Is it going to be the same thing? It started to stir up this pain in them. So I hope you can see that what was initially an administrative misstep could quickly be, start to feel personal. It could inflame emotions. And if not handled well... And wisely could lead to division. This new church community was on fire. They were doing amazing things. They were caring for one another. But all it took was a few overlooked widows for the Greek Jews to start looking at their Hebraic Jewish leadership. Peter and the rest. And wondering, wait a second. Are you going to treat us like second class members too? And this whole scene shows us how easy it is to draw dividing lines and pick sides, even in church. When we give our lives to Jesus, it doesn't mean that all of our past wounds or even our pride, they just go away. Yes, we are one in Christ, but isn't it interesting how all it takes is one missed invitation, one job that goes unrecognized, a critical word, an unfulfilled promise, a little jealousy, and all of a sudden that one thing starts to stir up all of this pain or perhaps pride within us. God may be doing great and powerful things through the church, but it's one misplaced word, one thoughtless action, that all of a sudden we start turning and seeing each other as adversaries instead of partners in the gospel. And when we start seeing each other as adversaries, we get caught in this either-or type of thinking. That the, that we start thinking either we're going to... Either we're going to be traditional worship or either we're going to be contemporary. Either we are going to be more about prayer or more about action. Either we're going to be a church for intellectuals or a church for feelers. For the younger generation, for the older. For the liberal, for the conservative. For those who care about social justice or those who care about evangelism. We're either going to be a church for those who want to open now or open later or somewhere in between. We want to draw lines. Pick sides. Pick sides. And then start looking at our brothers and sisters in Christ with suspicion. And that trick is as old as Acts chapter 6. That's exactly what the enemy of God wants to do. Is to turn us into enemies of one another. But the gospel that unites us is not an either-or gospel. It's a both-and gospel. That Jesus shed his blood on that cross. And he went down into the grave and rose again to give new life. We know not just to the Hebraic Jews, but to the Hellenistic Jews. And that no matter where we come from, no matter what we look like, no matter what we might certain affinities we might have as human beings. We are all united by the fact that we are sinners and that we need the grace of God and that he has made that available to us in Jesus Christ alone. And it is Jesus's new life that ultimately unites us, that brings us together. And that he, we realize that he gave his new life for the young and for the elderly, for those who agree with the government right now and those who do not, to those who are passionate about studying scripture and those who are passionate about working for social justice, that God is a God who has given his life for all. And therefore, that one thing unifies us and supersedes all other differences. And because of that, Because of that one thing, that we are united in Jesus. We are partners in the mission of God on this earth, not adversaries. Paul said it. Notice how many times he says the word one in this passage. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope. That belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Who is over all and through all and in all. Yeah, we're all different. That's actually a good thing. But the most important thing about us as his church is that we worship and serve the same Lord. And that makes us, no matter what, partners in the gospel. I know some people may be saying, okay, yes, Kirk, you know, I, t- I totally agree, right? Like the whole, I don't, we don't want to draw lines, we don't want to pick sides. I know that's not God's way, but, but sometimes, like, like, that sounds so idealistic. Let's not be naive. These problems and these divisions and these things that want to come between us as God's people, they're complicated and they're hard and they're overwhelming. What do we do about it? I know that picking sides is not God's way, but, but what is God's way? And I ask us, when the enemy wants to divide us, how do we follow God and his spirit so that we, our story turns out like Acts 6 instead of like the all-too-familiar story that I described at the beginning? How? Well, let's dig into this. And what we see is that when we may be taken back by a problem... God always sees the potential for growth in it. It's absolutely fascinating to me to see how God can take a deep-seated problem and actually use that problem as an opportunity for the growth of his people and his church. I mean, think about it. For the apostles, the stakes are pretty high if they got their decision wrong. If they, did the, they reacted this in the wrong way, they could have widened the chasm of resentment between these two groups. But instead, their spirit-led solution actually brings them together and strengthens the mission of the church. How? What can we pick up from their example and how they handled it? And, and whether you're a leader in a church or whether you're a leader in a business, in an organization, or your family... I want want us to all pick up something from this. Because this is such a beautiful picture of spirit-led leadership. But understand that the problems you and I face, the conflicts we face, will be different. So we're not looking just to copy exactly what they did, but we're looking to learn from their intentions. All right, let me show you what I mean by that. How do they respond? First, when faced with the conflict, The apostles saw the church as partners toward a solution, not enemies to be overcome. It says that the 12, meaning the 12 apostles, started by gathering everyone together. That means the Hebraic Jews and the Hellenistic Jews. Remember, the 12 apostles, as far as they were, they were Hebraic Jewish men. Which means when the Hellenistic Jewish men came and started pointing fingers at them, they easily could have responded or reacted with pride and insecurity instead of the Spirit of God. They easily, when those fingers were pointed at them, could, have, could start saying, whoa, 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 no, it's actually that person's fault. Or that, pointing fingers away from themselves. Are we not tempted to do the same? Or get defensive? Or they easily could have said, Hey... Other speaking to other Aramaic speaking Jews, they could have formed a little cadre off to the side and had their own complaint fest against the Greek Jews over there because, well, they can't understand us anyway. But instead they gathered everyone together, which made it clear that we don't view you as the problem. But you're going to be part of the solution with us. We're partners in the gospel. And then, second, the apostles didn't try to just fix it all themselves, but they stuck with their God-given calling. After calling the big family meeting, it says that they said to everybody, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. They said it's our job. We understand what our role is. Our role is to pray, to seek God's vision direction for this community and to make sure that the word of God is being taught. That's our role. It's not to wait on tables, they say. Now, maybe your first impression was similar to mine in that in reading that, I thought, "Whoa, whoa, wait a second. Didn't aren't these 12 guys like at least 11 of them the same guys, and Jesus washed their feet and told them that they were to wash other people's feet as well, a.k.a. do the lowest job. Are they acting like they're too good to do the job of waiting on the tables and caring for the widows? But as I began to think about this passage more, I realized that actually what they're saying is the exact opposite of that. They knew ...that they were not God. And that they could not do everything and be everything for everyone... ...no matter what they expected. They also knew that teaching and preaching the Word of God... ...was vital, essential. If the early church was to be built up... ...and if they were going to be protected from false teaching... ...as this movement began... ...then they knew their primary role was not to go make sure that widows are fed, but to feed the hearts and minds of the people and prayerfully discern God's direction for the church. And if they got distracted from their primary calling and they tried to be everything to everyone, they would have ultimately neglected the very foundation of that church. Instead, they're saying we need to remain disciplined and focused on what God has called us to do, Because we can't get distracted otherwise. And remember, Jesus himself, he knew he couldn't be everything for everyone. He had a calling. He knew the mission of God upon his life. And he, with resolute focus, kept his eyes on the cross. Because he knew why God had him. But can't you imagine when you have this group of people around you who are saying, you got to fix this problem. you got to fix this problem. And you see the potential ramifications of a division within the church. The anxiety that may well up within you. That would make you want to say, ah, I'll just fix it myself. I'll just fix it. But how easy that is to distract them from what they were called to do. We all have to ask ourselves at one point, like, God, what is it that you have called me to do? And by proxy... What is not my role? Truth is, you and I, we theoretically may be able to make everyone happy and please everyone. But if we have failed to ultimately do the thing that God has called us to do, then we ultimately have failed. And the apostles, they said, number one, we have to recognize our own human limitations. We're not God. We know what our role is. We're going to stick to that. And we're going to see the rest of this church as partners in a solution. Which allowed them to, number three, see the opportunity to now empower others. The apostles then delegated the problem, Acts 6, verse 3. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them. Now notice, we know that the job that they have is an administrative one, to make sure that these widows have their needs met. But they did not say, hey, make sure and find some guys with Great managerial experience or leadership experience. But while that was inherent within it, I'm sure, they said the number one thing we want to look for is those who are led by the spirit of God and wisdom. Which shows us that the apostles didn't view their pastoral role as the only spiritual task. But right here, they they recognize that ministry comes in many different forms, and all forms need the Holy Spirit. The work may have been administrative, but it was no less spiritual in nature. When we think about the various functions in this church, for example, we think about the missions committee, who determine how 10% of all that you guys give, how we can give that away to support our missions partners, do we not hope that they are led by the Spirit of God and wisdom? Of course. When, When volunteers in our foster box go and deliver packages to different foster families, do we not hope that they have a prayerful, discerning ear to know how they can support those families? Of course. When we gather together again as a church, Do we not hope that our ushers and our greeters and and, and our worship team would not exhibit the very qualities of the Spirit of God? Now, I could keep going, right? I could keep going. But But as followers of Christ, each of us have certain gifts and passions that have been given to us by the Spirit of God that are meant to be exercised and that He wants to direct. And that following God's Spirit is not for special Christians. It's for normal Christians. And as we learn to follow God's Spirit, that's when He shows us how we're partners in His solution. After the apostles raised the need, the people appointed seven men. And it's interesting how most of the names of these seven men appear to be Greek names. Again, the apostles did not see the Hellenistic Jewish community as adversaries, but partners, giving them a seat at the table and empowering them. And it says the apostles even laid hands on them and prayed for them, exemplifying a passing on of authority to them. And as a result, these seven men, we can look at two in particular, Stephen and Philip, that you'll read about more next week in Acts 7 and Acts 8. But Stephen and Philip. We see Stephen is a guy who gives us epic sermon in Acts chapter 7 and becomes the first martyr of the church at the feet of none other than Saul of Tarsus. Of course, we know Saul of Tarsus eventually became Paul. The same Paul who took the gospel across the Gentile world. It's unclear what impression that experience of watching Stephen die left on him, but I guarantee that was a memory that Paul never forgot. We look at Philip. Philip, now empowered by the apostles, was the first guy to take the gospel that we read about to Samaria. Revival broke out there. And then he was transported and takes the gospel to an Ethiopian eunuch who then carries the gospel to Ethiopia. And if you think about it, all of that started because of a problem of some Hellenistic Jewish widows who did not have their needs met. God worked in the middle of that problem and directed it for the growth of His church and for the building up of His people. And if the apostles had instead viewed them as adversaries instead of partners, would any of that have happened? I'm not sure. But... Because they viewed one another as partners, not only were the needs of the poor met among them, but it says that the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. You know, our goal as a church is not to try to be problem free. For one, that's impossible. Our goal as a church is that whenever we do meet problems, conflict, that we learn to listen and follow the Spirit of God as He navigates us through it, knowing that He is going to lead us to a place of greater growth, not only personally, but for the church as a whole. A problem in the hands, in our hands is an opportunity for God to show the world who he is you and I were not made for the sidelines we were made to be partners with God doing working alongside with his Holy Spirit for the benefit of the church it's not just for a select few but all of those endowed with the Holy Spirit are called to his mission together Paul even says, he says, yes, you're saved by grace. That is true. But he adds on to it in Ephesians 2.10. He says, oh, by the way, you are God's handiwork. Crafted by a loving artist. Created in Christ Jesus for the good works which he has prepared in advance for you to do. We are partners in this together. So I want to ask you. Just leave you with two questions as we close out. Number one, what are the natural passions that you've noticed just bubble up within you? When you think about the church of Jesus, or you pray for the church of Jesus, what do you naturally begin to pray for? What are those issues, those causes that at times you've noticed even make you emotional? Are you somebody who's like, man, I I, want to make sure that kids know they're loved and have a home? Man, I, I want to make sure that people are knowing the Word of God. I want to see intergenerational relationships built up. I want to see addicts walk in freedom. What, what are those things that you just crave to see changed? Soak on that. Think about that. Take that before God. Oftentimes our answer to that question comes out of something that we've experienced in our own story. Maybe something broken that we want to see healed. And then number two, what gifts and abilities has God given you? And how might those gifts and abilities intersect with your passion? Are you great at hospitality? Do you love thinking strategically? Uh, do, you, do you love fixing cars, working with computers, explaining complex ideas and breaking them down so people can understand them? Do you love, love listening to people Whatever those gifts might be and you can that's found out through prayers, found out through talking to others who've lived life alongside of you. How might the Holy Spirit want it to to direct those things? Because a problem in our hands is an opportunity for God to show the world who He is. Let's now close with this. You know oftentimes when I'm not in church, and uh, people ask me, hey, what do you do for a living? And I tell them I'm a pastor. Inevitably, I'm met with this somewhat curious, slightly confused, but also not wanting to offend me kind of face. I'm not sure if you know what that looks like. And then followed by the question of, um, what, what made you want to do that? Well, they're even more formal, what led you to that line of work? And obviously, the answer to that question is a lot more complex than just one thing. um, Because there's many parts of my own story that have led to that. I actually love that question, by the way. Because it often leads to a great spiritual conversation. But, truth be told, the initial push for me to want To actually pastor and go into pastoral ministry. Was because of that first church that I talked about at the very beginning. It was that first church. As a teenager I may not have understood everything that was going on. But I still remember the feeling of that weight of division. I remember seeing and feeling its impact on my parents. And seeing what it did to the community that I had when we had to leave and all of a sudden my friendships were broken. And I remember thinking, this is not who Jesus is. And this is not what his church is meant to be. And that whole experience left a burden on my own heart to see God's church united in his spirit, built up in his word, and empowered to be the people of God that we're called to be. It's ultimately because of the problem that God worked in me, a desire to do what I'm doing now. See, man, that's just what our God does he takes our brokenness. He heals us in the blood of Jesus. And then he empowers us and breathes the life of the spirit within us so that we become a part of his mission on earth. We become partners together in the gospel. This is the same God who if we think a problem's too big, this is the same God who went down into death itself and rose again to give us new life. There is no problem too big. But if we follow him, and keep our ear close to him, looking for godly wisdom. He's going to show us the potential for growth within it. And we can't wait to see what he's going to continue to do through us as his people, his church. How might he be leading you? A problem in our hands is an opportunity for God to show the world who he is. Let's pray. Holy God, loving Father, I'll never get over the fact that you gave your very life for me when I was your enemy. When I was broken in my own selfishness, and my own sin, when my pride blinded me to your love, you revealed yourself to me. You transformed my heart. And now you're continuing the work of causing me to, to be, causing me to, to to become one of love like you, God. I have a long way to go. I know that, but I want to be like you. And so, Father, I pray for us as a church. May you unify us in your Spirit when we're tempted to look down and see our differences and 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 react in hurt or pain, God, I pray that your love would fill our hearts, that we might be able to see one another as you do, as brothers and sisters and partners in the gospel together. Because, God, we know that you have a plan for us, your people, your church, that's far bigger than anything we can possibly imagine. And then even in problems like a pandemic, you still work in the midst of it, and your word is going out. God, we want to work with you. Will you fill us, your people, with your spirit? Would you reveal to us the passions that you place within our hearts, the, your very heart within us? And may you show us how we're to partner with you. to see your kingdom come, your will be done across our communities as it is in heaven. We love you, we praise you. Nothing is too big for you. May you be glorified in all that we do. And may you bring us together tighter than ever so that we might mobilize together for your good work on this earth. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.